Let's pray together, shall we, before we begin tonight. Father, I just want to thank you because we know that the coming of Jesus is very near. And Father, we thank you for the thrill that's in our heart because your Holy Spirit speaks to us and he tells us that the coming of the Lord is nearer now than when we first believed. And Father, I just thank you when we see the disasters around us and the world situation. Father, we can enter in with prayer, but Father, there's never desperation in our hearts for we know that you are in full control of human destiny. You've got everything in the palm of your hand. And Father, I just worship you, even tonight, because you have seen fit to call us your bride, seen fit to say we are the body of Jesus Christ, and you've showered your love upon us so that we drink deeply. Thank you, it is joy, unspeakable, and it's absolutely full of glory, because we have a Lord who's coming for us one day, for he's coming back, praise God. Father, and I thank you that every person in this room will see the day when he comes. Father, some may have died before that, but they will see it. And Father, some will be alive, and they will see it as well. And Father, I thank you that as part of our future history, every person here can say that they will see the day when Jesus comes back to the earth. <laughs> Father, I just worship you for that. Oh, Father, the thrill is in our hearts when we just consider it. Father, tonight, may your Holy Spirit come and illuminate us. We know, Father, that it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who is the teacher. And Father, we need him to teach us, even tonight. Father, just come. Father, come upon every person in this meeting, upon every person listening to the tapes. Father, upon myself as well. Father, that the Holy Spirit may be at the beginning, in the middle and at the end, and that the glorious truth of the rapture of the church should really come home with power and fullness. Father, may all that is said be pleasing to you. Father, may the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight tonight and may the thoughts and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. We have been uh, considering the topic of whether the church will be going through the tribulation or whether it will not be going through the tribulation. And if you've been here for the last few studies, you already know the answer. The answer is definitely, definitely, definitely no. The church can in no way go through this period that we call the tribulation. The church is not destined to be affected by the terrors, nor the judgments, nor the harshness of that seven-year period. Well, we've seen it using a number of considerations. Uh, quickly to recap, let's remind ourselves of what we've seen. First of all, we saw that the church was a mystery. That is, it is m not mentioned in the Old Testament and had to be revealed uh, freshly, as it were, as a brand new revelation in the New Testament. The next thing was that although the church wasn't mentioned in the Old Testament, the tribulation was mentioned. And when it was mentioned, it all was mentioned specifically concerning the Jews. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble. And we saw that during the tribulation, the Jews would be terribly persecuted, but at the end, there would be a remnant saved who would turn back to their Messiah and to their Lord. These are the considerations that we've taken. Last time, we saw that the tribulation is a period called Daniel's 70th week. 
And we saw that the 70th week of Daniel was a seven-year period which completed the history of the Jews. Now, if it's true, if our conclusion is true, that because of those considerations, the church cannot in any way pass through the period we call the tribulation, then we should now, tonight, be able to talk about the time when the church is removed from the earth, and we should find that our, what we talk about tonight confirms our former findings. And so tonight, we're going to complete the section on the church by talking about the day that the church is removed. Let's remind ourselves of the little time chart that we've, uh, we've drawn up. We have the church beginning in AD 33 on the day of Pentecost. And you remember we talked about that when we did the tape on what really happened at Pentecost. And the church has been on the earth since AD 33. Now we come along now and we know that the next period of time is called the Tribulation. Because we know that the church is not going through the tribulation, it must be that the church is removed from the earth before the tribulation. And therefore, I'm going to draw an arrow pointing upwards here, before the tribulation, actually showing that the church will be removed. Once the church is removed, then the tribulation will begin. What do we call this removal of the church? Now, if you want to refer to it just as the removal of the church, that's absolutely fine. Very often, you know, Christians talk about, argue about things, and sometimes they find they're just using a different term for the event they're talking about. Now, let me tell you, if you want to call the time that the church is removed from the earth the removal of the church, that's fair enough, then do so. If you want to call it the translation of the church, then also do so you will find other Christians do the same. The translation of the church, when the earth is translated from the earth into heaven. But there is a term that I prefer to use, which is called the rapture of the church. By the rapture of the church, I simply mean the removal or the translation of the church. If you don't like the term rapture, simply in your mind replace it with translation or replace it by removal. I really don't mind. I'll be telling you where we get this word rapture from a little later on. Do you know, there are some Christians who say, and I, one actually saw me a few years ago, he said, I don't believe in the rapture of the church. And I said, well, amazing, why not? Because the word rapture isn't found in my Bible. That's what he said. And I said, I see, so you don't believe in the rapture of the church because the word rapture isn't found in your Bible. And do you know, he was right. The word rapture never occurs in the Bible nor in the Greek Bible, but it does in the Latin Bible. But forget that for the moment. And I said, oh, I see. So because the word's not in there, you don't believe in it. And I said, well, do you know that the word Trinity isn't in the Bible either? <laughs> and I said, so I, by the same rules, you therefore don't uh, believe in the Trinity. Um, well, uh, and he saw that he'd made a fundamental error. The question is not whether the word, the name we give to it, is found in the Bible. The question is whether the Bible has anything to say about the event. And the answer is, oh yes it does. It has a lot to say about the Trinity, though it never calls it the Trinity. It has a lot to say about the rapture of the church, even though it doesn't call it the rapture of the church. Let me repeat it. By the rapture of the church, I mean the removal of the church from the earth. Now to see this, 
I want to have a look at what the Jews thought was going to happen. Do you remember we've done this in the past? The church was a mystery, that is, it was nowhere mentioned in the Old Testament. And if the church is a mystery, isn't it obvious that the removal of the church from the earth will also be a mystery and not mentioned in the Old Testament? So to show you just how new this teaching was to the early church, I want to refresh our memories over what the Jews thought was going to happen in terms of the last days. Now the Jews thought this was going to happen. Here were the Jews going along quite merrily in their history. And when they read their Old Testament, they saw that a period was coming, which we call the Tribulation, which they called the period of Jacob's trouble, a seven-year period which was going to be very dark indeed. But the Jews were going to get through the tribulation. And then they believed that Messiah was coming. Messiah would come down from the heavens and he would uh, actually land on the Mount of Olives. It is going to happen, by the way, in future years. We'll be dealing with it uh, in later studies. And they thought the Messiah was coming, he would land on the Mount of Olives, and then he would sit in judgment over the whole earth. His throne would be on the earth, and he would gather all the nations together, Jews and Gentiles, believers and unbelievers, and he would divide between them. And he would put all the unbelievers on his left, and all the believers on his right. And do you know what he'd do then? This is what the Jews believed. He'd remove all of the unbelievers. In other words, he'd clean up the earth and leave only believers on the earth. Now that's what they thought was going to happen. So when they talked about the Lord's return, they meant the day when the Lord or the Messiah would come down from the heavens onto the earth. Now that was it. Of course, the church hadn't come into their reckoning at all. And so they had to make a few alterations in their thinking. But let's have a look at where they got this idea from. Turn first of all to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel and chapter 20. And let's see this judgment. And begin verse 33. Now here it is. Referring to the time that the Lord or Messiah returns to the earth. Verse 33. As I live, saith the Lord God, of Ezekiel 20 this is, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out will I rule over you. And I will bring you out from the people and will gather you out of the countries wherein ye are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people and there will I plead with you face to face. Now when we dealt with this passage in the baptism of fire, the tape in the second series, I remarked on the fact that the word plead here is the word to judge. And if you have an NIV or a new version, you will find that it is the word to judge. He says, I will bring you Jews out into a certain place and there I'm going to judge you. And then he says, like as I judged your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so will I judge you, saith the Lord God. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge out from among you the rebels 
And them that trans transgress against me, I will bring them forth out of the country where they sojourn. They shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. And so on this terrible day, there is going to be a separation. And the unbelievers are going to be removed. The believers then are going to live on the earth and are going to go through into the kingdom, or the millennium as we would call it, and they will people the earth in the millennium. There was the sorting out that was going to happen. By the way, I'm going to repeat it again. It's the unbelievers who are removed, not the believers. The Jews found no trouble in this. It's only the church that finds trouble in this because the Jews were used to it. You see, what had happened, for example, in Noah's day? Well, in Noah's day, there had been believers and unbelievers together on the earth. Then God's judgment came in the form of a flood. And who was left after the flood? Believers were. What had happened to the unbelievers? They'd been removed. Do you see? They always expected the unbelievers to be removed. What happened in Lot's day? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah was full of unbelievers. Lot and his family were the only righteous ones. So God judged Sodom. And who was left? Lot was left. Sure, he was outside you know, protected, but he was left. What had happened to the unbelievers? They'd been removed. And that's what they thought would happen when the Messiah returned. We see this confirmed in Jesus' own teaching. If you go to Matthew 25, in the second half, you remember the first half is about the ten virgins. If you haven't heard the tape on the ten virgins, it is crucial that you do. A very much misunderstood passage. Matthew chapter 25 and go to verse 31. Now this is Jesus teaching about that day, the second advent when he will return. He says this, verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. The word nations is the same Greek word for Gentiles. This is the judgment of the Gentile nations. He will gather all the Gentile nations in front of him on the earth. He is on the earth, they are on the earth. And look what's going to happen. And he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, they're the believers, but the goats on his left hand. This is at the end of the tribulation, the judgment when Jesus returns. Verse 34, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, the believers, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. In other words, in your human body, go through into the kingdom and populate the earth, repopulate it. And there will be a population explosion directly after this judgment. Go and refill the earth. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to explain what the judgment is based on. During the tribulation, the Jews are going to be terribly persecuted. All the Gentiles are going to hate them except for the believers. And the Jews are going to be really on the run. The, the believers, that is, among the Jews, they're really going to be on the run. They'll be hiding away in every cupboard space that they could find, rather like the Jews in Europe were during the last war. And you remember, during the last war, certain families took them in. 
They heard they were Jewish and they said, come on in. It was mainly Bible-believing families that did it, by the way. You know, they opened up their doors and said, if you're one of the Lord's people, you come into my house. And then they had them in the house. They often gave them the gospel, of course, in the Second World War. You see? But in the tribulation, exactly the same thing is going to happen. And when God judges the Gentiles, look what he's going to say to them. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous, Gentiles specifically, shall answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered, and fed thee? Or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, specifically the Jews, ye have done it unto me. Isn't it funny, by the way, how modernists, they're people who malign the Bible, they quote this passage and they say to everyone, Now, to be a Christian, you've got to be good to everyone. Whoever comes along, the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, you've got to do it, because on that day, he will say, I was hungry, you fed me. That's what they say. I'm always amused, because of course most of these people don't believe in eternal judgment. They don't believe in everlasting fire. So they always stop there, at verse 40. You know, that's it. By the way, Christians should do good to all men, especially to the household of God, but you won't get to heaven like that. That is not enough to get you to heaven. There's only one way you get to heaven, and that's on the basis of the, sa the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for your sins on the cross. Notice how it goes on. Modernists never like the rest of this passage. Verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire. Never say that. Prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was unhungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, ye took me not in. Naked, ye clothed me not. Sick and in prison, ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee an hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he say to them, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not unto me. And in the tribulation, these people are going to be some of the top people. And they're going to think that by persecuting the Jews, they're actually fulfilling the law of God. And yet it's because they're unbelievers in their heart that they will do it. Here, by the way, is a perfect fulfillment of uh, Genesis 12, 1-3. He that blesses Israel, he shall be blessed. Praise God. He that curses Israel, he shall be cursed. Verse 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Now that's the same judgment. Unbelievers, believers, separated, and who leaves? The unbeliever leaves. Do you see it? Who stays? The believer stays. Alright, now go back to Matthew 24, and let's see it here. And in verse 36 onwards. For of that day and hour... Now what does that refer to? Does it refer to the rapture of the church? It does not. It refers to the second advent of Jesus Christ, seven years later. But as to the day and the hour of that, in verse 36 of Matthew 24, knoweth no man, no, 
not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And Jesus here believed in a literal Noah and in a literal flood, you will notice. This was not just picture language to him. He really believed it. He says, why? As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the second advent of Jesus Christ. Verse 38. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark. There, nothing wrong in those things, by the way. They were simply busy living. That's all it means. They were so busy living, they couldn't consider the gospel message. So will it be, of course, when the Son of Man comes. And what happened in Noah's day? The unbeliever was removed. The believer stayed. Now read on. Verse 39 and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And verse 40 is not the rapture of the church. If you think it is, you are very confused. It's the quickest way not to understand the Bible. I've heard preachers galore turn to this passage and say, this is the rapture of the church. Hooey, it's rubbish. Nothing to do with the rapture of the church. This is to do with the second advent and the judgment at the second advent. Look. Then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken, the other left. Who's the one taken? The unbeliever is taken. It's the judgment at the second advent. Who's left? The believer's left. Crucial. There are some Christians who've never heard this before. Next. 41, two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken and the other left. And in Luke it says there shall be two people in one bed, one will go, the other will be left. The unbeliever is removed, the believer stays at this judgment. The fact that some are in the field and some are in bed show that all around the world the second advent of Jesus Christ will occur at exactly the same moment. On one side of the world it's going to be dark, the other side it's going to be in daylight. But the judgment's coming instantaneously. Praise God. Now that's what the Jews believed and that is what will happen. But we haven't hit the rapture of the church yet. Okay, into that scene Jesus now comes and he speaks to the disciples just the evening before his death. And he says things that are absolutely amazing. Turn with me to this passage. It's so well known, most Christians read it without thinking about it. In John 14 and beginning verse 1. Now I wonder whether you've ever seen this. John 14 and beginning verse 1. Alright, now he's talking to people who had an Old Testament education. Look what he says. This is the words of Jesus. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, that's in heaven, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now that was stunning immediately. Because to the Old Testament Jews, they didn't expect a place in heaven. They expected a kingdom on the earth that the believers were going through. And here's Jesus saying, I'm going into heaven, and listen, up there I'm preparing a place for you. They must have scratched their heads and thought, no, I must have heard this wrong. It's very important. But he doesn't stop there. He then says even more amazing things in the next verse. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. 
Ah, they thought they knew what coming again meant. Oh yes, you're coming again onto the earth and we'll go through into the kingdom. Oh yes. Oh no. Because Jesus then goes on. Look what he says. I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. That was staggering. Here, he's saying that when I come again, you will be taken away from the earth and up into heaven where I am. This was new. They'd studied the Old Testament through and through and through and they'd never found any statement like this. And suddenly, the day before he dies, Jesus suddenly issues forth this statement. It was the most amazing statement that he could have made. Now, the reason most Christians don't understand just what a problem passage this would be is because they don't understand the background that I have actually pointed out earlier on. Do you see how confusing this was? This contradicted all of their theology. What do you mean? You're coming back? You're going to take us up with you? No, no, no. Haven't you read Ezekiel 20? Haven't you read Zechariah? It's very clear in these passages. No, you don't do that. Jesus was talking about something that they hadn't understood before. He was talking about the day he was coming for his church. Praise God. What do we call something in the Bible that is revealed in the New Testament but not in the Old? We've had it earlier on. It's a mystery. Is the removal of the church called a mystery in the New Testament? Well, as you'd expect, it is. Where do we find that? In this pearl of passages called 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, if you turn with it, I've often imagined that I'm cast away on the desert island and I can take uh, eight scripture references with me. And which scripture references would I actually take? Well, I'll tell you, this would be my first choice. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, it's magnificent. And I'm going to begin at verse 51. Now, all this was brand new. Here's Paul. He is talking to the church, and he's giving information concerning the last days of the church on earth. Behold... I show you a mystery. Do you remember that a mystery doesn't mean something that's puzzling? It means something that hadn't been revealed before. I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. The early church never talked about death. They talked about sleeping. The idea here is not of a, a sort of fitful sleep. It's of peaceful slumber. The type of sleep where you're absolutely exhausted... And you say, isn't it marvellous to get to bed? And you lie back in the bed, you put your head on the pillow, and you're away, it's bliss. And that's the phrase that's used for death, for the Christian. Isn't that wonderful? It, when we die, we're going to say, blow it. Why was I so nervous about that? How come I got so uptight about this whole thing called death, when it's actually been one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever been through in my life? It's like sleep. Absolutely marvellous. We shall not all sleep, that is to die, but we shall all be changed. Changed, he says. Now can you see, in the Old Testament pattern, you weren't changed. You simply were put on the right side and you went through in your human body to inherit the kingdom. There was no change about it. But we shall be changed, praise God. You don't have many years to live in this mortal body of yours. That's the good news about it. And what does he say? We shall all be changed, verse 52. Now here he tries to explain how rapidly it's going to happen. 
Look what he says, in a moment. The word in Greek for a moment is an atom. He's trying to say the smallest bit of time you can ever imagine. Imagine a bit of time so small you can't halve it. A second isn't that because you've always got half a second. Half a second isn't that because you've got a quarter. But here, the point of time is so small it's impossible to get any smaller. That's how quickly it will take, it will be, for God to change your mortal body. You see, you're not such a problem after all. <laughs> Hallelujah. God will have to think of it for about an atom of time and that's all. Then it says, as if you haven't got the point from in a moment, it says, in the twinkling of an eye. What a lovely phrase that is. In the twinkling of an eye. The Greek phrase is also used for the buzz of a gnat. You know a gnat comes in. The phrase is used for one buzz. That's how quickly it's going to be. Or the quiver. It's sometimes used for the quiver of a harp string. Imagine how quickly that quivers. Or even for the twinkling of a star. In other words, it just happens and it's over. And that's how quickly it's going to be. It might happen in the middle of this Bible study. Only the tape, tape people will know whether it has. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Do you see? Then it goes on, in case you haven't got that. <laughs> Praise the Lord. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. Now there it, it goes, the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound. And you've no idea the complication that that has caused some Christians. Oh, the trumpet's going to sound. Oh, well, that proves we're going through the tribulation. You see, that's what they say. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, the tribulation is ordered in with trumpets. And the next phase of the, of the thing will start. You see, and so they say, now this is the last trump. So that just proves we're going through the tribulation. Ah, 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 ah. You see, in the Old Testament, whenever an army was marching, it always had its marching orders with a trumpet. And very often the troops will be told there'll be seven trumpets in the morning. What that meant was when the first one went, went, you only had six more to go. And by the time the last one came, it was time to move out. Everyone would be moving out at the last trumpet. And you had to busy yourself getting ready. I stayed in the house a few weeks ago where instead of a trumpet, they had a bell for breakfast. And I was told, well, our system in this house, they said, it's for the children, but it also applies to the guests. <laughs> is that, and they'll be listening to this tape as well, is that we have three bells. The first bell, then five minutes, then the second bell, then five minutes, then the third bell, and everyone assembles directly after the third bell. My alarm had gone off and I was still in bed. And the first bell went. And I thought, oh, well, that's all right, two more bells. <laughs> fine, you know. Then the second bell went. Now, it was a warning to me, it's time to get up. And I scurried about, had a very quick shave, half shave, you know, whenever I try and do that, by the way, I'm cut all over the place. And, uh, you know, very rapidly got, got out of my pyjamas and into my clothes. And, and then the third bell went and suddenly bright as anything in breakfast as if you've been up for about three hours, you know. <laughs> and everyone else turned up bleary-eyed, you know, unshaven and the lot. Now, the last bell meant it's time to leave your room and get out. And what it shows us, this particular passage, is this, that in heaven, every phase of history is marked by a trumpet. We know this as Bible believers, that actually the history of the earth is actually only what we see. But in the heavenlies, there's, there are things that we don't see. There is angelic conflict going on. But I tell you, the whole of human history is marked out with trumpets.
And at the last trumpet, it's time to move out, folks. Praise God. And once we've moved out, then Israel's history continues, and that's also dominated by trumpets. The last trump is no problem. It simply means it's the time that the army left. That's it. So at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and look what's going to happen. The dead shall be raised incorruptible. And God will collect together, as it were, the molecules that were part of their body, and all of a sudden they're going to be reassembled with a glorious resurrection body. They're going to be changed. A body now that no worm will ever eye, you know, while smacking its lips. <laughs> Absolutely not. There isn't an insect that wants to touch the resurrection body. It is incorruptible. That means it will never age. It will never see corruption again. Totally incorruptible. The dead, first of all, shall rise. For 1,900 years, members of the church have been dying. Do you know what's going to happen? They're going to be raised incorruptible. They're already face to face with the Lord in their soul. But what's going to happen? Their body is going to be reconstituted now as a glorious resurrection body. For this, sorry, verse 52, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, look, and we shall be changed. By we, he means those who are alive at the, at, at the rapture of the church. Those who are alive at the rapture. We shall be changed. All of a sudden, you'll be glorious. We're being changed from one degree of glory to another all the time. But at this split second of time, you'll be changed beyond all recognition. Absolutely glorious. You'll be shining. You'll be so marvellous. Why does he say we? I'll tell you why. Because he expected it in his lifetime. And this is the great key. God has always had the church expecting to be taken any time. It has kept the church absolutely on fire. It has kept the church on tiptoes. It has kept the church always ready, looking for the coming of the Lord. Right? Imminency is what we call this. They expected it imminently. He was wrong. So have every generation in the past been wrong. We must be careful that we're not wrong. But I will say this, as we're going to see in future talks, we have more evidence for it being us than any other generation that's gone before. Praise God. And that's why we believe, yes, it's going to be us. If not us, our children's generation, definitely. That's what we would say. Praise God. All right? We shall be changed. Verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on, put on immortality. Now that refers, therefore, to a brand new event, the rapture of the church. It's entirely different from this event that the Jews expected when Jesus Christ returns second advent. Do we know anything else about it? The answer is yes, because Paul wrote more about this. Turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 4 and beginning verse 13. All right? Now, here was a church that had experienced tremendous persecution. There had been martyrs galore. They'd lost, lost wives. They'd lost children. Sometimes they'd lost husbands. Um, they certainly had lost fathers, nephews, uncles. And they were really mourning about what the Romans had done to the church in this particular place. So Paul writes to them. And isn't it interesting? This is the earliest book that he wrote. This is the first book that Paul wrote. 
And what's its subject? Its subject is prophecy, as we saw right at the beginning of the third, third course on prophecy. He starts off with prophecy. So he says this, verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, use of the phrase again, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus. Now, the in Jesus there refers to the church, for it is only the church that is said to be in Jesus, in Christ. We are the only ones. Those which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, which means it carries top authority, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent, which means to go before, them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, who is the person in charge of history. Next phase, please, is what he says. He'll descend when that shout comes with the trump, which is a trumpet blast, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. All those who are dead are going to go up in their resurrection body before those who are still alive. But then, uh, verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Can you see, this is not the same as what we saw earlier, where Jesus returned and judged the believers and the unbelievers. No. This time, those of us who are still alive will be taken up, caught up, even to meet the Lord with those who had died in the Lord, up in the clouds in the air. The word, by the way, caught up in Latin is rapio, R-A-P-I-O. And it's from that word that we get the word rapture. The word rapture means to be caught up. If you believe in the rapture of the church, you believe the day's coming when the church will be taken up, even into the clouds of glory. Oh, he's not coming down to the earth here. He's going to be up in the air. And we're going up to meet him. Praise the name of Jesus. Returning for his bride, as it were. There is, is marvellous news. Do you see, this is definitely different from the Old Testament pattern. And this is why the rapture of the church is a mystery, for it is brand new. All right, then it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Do you remember that when we talked about a wedding, the... It always occurred like this. The first of all, the bridegroom would go to the bride's house and pick her up. He'd wait outside and she'd come out of the house to meet him. Well, that's what this is all about. And then he'd drive along in the chariot for a period of time and eventually they'd reach the place where they're having the wedding feast. That's exactly what is beginning here. The Lord will pick up his bride from the earth and will be taken to heaven. So will we ever be with the Lord. Verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words. And isn't it comforting and wonderful? Why, the people who died, they're going first. And then we're going to meet them up in the clouds, in the air. Definitely so. 
Now that is what the Bible has to say about the rapture of the church. Once the rapture of the church has occurred, then the tribulation begins on the earth. Then Israel becomes God's witness again, and the Jewish people become God's witnesses, and then you get all of the events unfolding, some of which we saw last time. Right, before we go on, I want to just have a look at the belief that some people have that the church will go through the tribulation. Because if you hold to that view, you have very serious problems, and you've got to answer certain problems. So I want to point out these problems because I've generally found that people who think the church is going through the tribulation haven't thought about these particular problems. Let me just show you, there are six that I'm going to deal with, six problems. Now this is not for us, we don't have problems like this. First of all, these are for people who believe the church is going through the tribulation. The first problem has to do with imminency. I'll show you a few passages later on. The Bible, the New Testament, definitely shows that the Lord could return for his church at any time. And the early church certainly believed that at any time the Lord could come for his people. Now, if you believe that the church is going through the tribulation, it is impossible to believe that the Lord could come at any time. They are simply not... You can't hold both of those. Why? Well, simply because, for example, the temple's got to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Uh, there's got to be a statue on the pinnacle of the temple, as we saw last time. These haven't happened yet. So what does that mean? Well, it means he can't come yet if we're going through the tribulation. Do you see that? For example, tonight. Is it possible for us to be raptured tonight if we're going through the tribulation? No. For tonight, we'll have to say, well, we're not in the tribulation yet, so it's going to be at least seven years. Wherefore, comfort ye with that thought. <laughs> <clears throat> That's objection number two. Number two. Comfort. Have you all understood the first point? Right? You very definitely, if the Lord can come any time, you can't be going through the tribulation. The second one, comfort. Well, I tell you this, it is absolutely no comfort if I stood up and say we'd had a death in the fellowship and I say, well, I've got words of comfort to give you all. This person has gone to be with the Lord and we miss them tremendously. But we're going to see them again. Why? It's only going to be another seven years at the least and we're going to see them again. They're going to be terrible years. Many of you will die before we come to the end of these seven years. Many of you are going to be imprisoned, tortured appallingly. Many of you are going to lose all you've got. But at the end of the seven years, well, if you're still alive, I doubt whether many of you will be, but if you're still alive, you're going to see them again. Now what's going to happen? You're going to rush home and say, oh, wonderful words of comfort we had tonight. <laughs> Roger was really on form tonight, honestly. Do you know what he said? You wouldn't do that at all. You'd rush home and say, do you know what he said? <laughs> Some comfort. Definitely not. If the rapture of the church can be used as comfort, it means it can happen at any time. Beloved, that is a comforting thought, right? I remember when I took my finals at university, I had this little thought, well, Lord, I may not have to sit them. That was a great comfort to me, but I still slogged away, may I say. Number three, what I call no signs. 
Um, Jesus and the Old Testament told the people to look for signs. Jesus actually said, when you hear of wars, rumours of wars, when you see this, you know that I'm coming soon. And yet, interestingly, in the New Testament, where the church is referred to, we are never told to look for signs. Absolutely not. What do we have to look for? The coming of the Lord. You see? Now, it's entirely different. We don't look for signs. Of course, we keep our ear close to the ground, but we know full well that we could go before the temple was built in Jerusalem. Do you see? And so, there is a difference here. If you believe we're going through the tribulation, then it should be that the church was warned, look out for the signs, the same signs. Look out for them. We're not told that. We're told to look for the coming of the Lord. That's number three. Number four, it's number five I... I'm desperate to get on to, but let's do number four. We find number four in another passage of Scripture, which is Jude and verse 14. Jude is just before the book of Revelation. Jude and verse 14, where we have a most remarkable quote. Right? A most remarkable quote. Here is a quotation from a man called Enoch, who was the seventh from Adam. This quotation is not from the Old Testament. It's very important that it was, uh, everyone knew this quotation, but it's nowhere written in the Old Testament at all. Why? Because it refers to the church. And the church is not mentioned anywhere in the Old Testament. Couldn't be in the Old Testament. But the fact that Jude quotes it shows that it's part of uh, Holy Scripture. Verse 14 of Jude. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Aha. The Lord is coming, do you see, with ten thousands. It doesn't say ten thousand. It says ten thousands. We don't know how many. This is an innumerable number. He's coming with ten thousands of his saints. Now, the question is, if the church isn't raptured, right, where on earth do these come from then? You can't just uh, suddenly dig them up from nowhere. Actually, this shows that when the Lord returns, second advent, we are going to accompany him. Therefore, the rapture must have occurred some point before he returns. That's point number four. So, four, Jude 14. Now, five is a lovely one. And five is a problem that people who try and answer number four get themselves into. You see, some people, and quite a number of charismatics, and quite a number of well-known charismatics, people that we know, anyway, they would answer number four by saying, ah, oh, hold on a minute. What's going to happen is this. And what they say is, the church is going to go through the tribulation, and as the Lord becomes de starts descending... The, the believers on the earth who've got through the tribulation, they're going to be caught up to be with the Lord and then they will return instantaneously with the Lord. So they believe that we're going to go straight up and come straight down again. <laughs> see? Uh-huh. Like riding on the British underground. <laughs> see, that's it. On these escalators and things. And that's what they believe. They say, oh, no, 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 no. Jude 14 is easy. Just before the Lord returns, second advent, we're going to be caught up and we will return with the Lord. That's simple. Oh, it's not simple. You are, if that is true, you are left with the most terrible problem. And I'm very happy to point it out to you. <laughs> and the problem is this. 
if it's true that the church does this, <laughs> taken up and come straight down, who are the believers in their physical body who are judged when we return then? Because you see, in the Old Testament it says, when the Lord returns, the believers and the unbelievers are going to be separated in their bodies. And the believers who are in their physical bodies will go through to people the millennium. Now, if all the believers have been raptured and given a resurrection body, who then are the people who are the believers who are going through to people the earth in the kingdom? You've got no one left. We've all gone. Oh dear, oh dear. Now you're stuck. You see, you really are. And then, who are the believers who are judged and separated from the unbelievers then? Because he said, I will gather all together and separate the believers. But if we've already been separated and given the resurrection body, who's he talking about? You end up with such a mess, you know that's not right, definitely. Do you see that? Actually, what this shows us is there has to be a sufficient time lap between the church leaving and returning again for there have to have been new believers on the earth. And that shows us that these things are not instantaneous. You see? Think about that one very carefully. I've never, ever, ever anywhere read, somewhere, read a person who believes the church is going through the tribulation who has ever tried to answer number five. I've never found it anywhere. It's crucial. And listen to the tape again until you get that point. Let me repeat it. When the Lord returns second advent, there is going to be a judgment on the earth and the believers and the unbelievers are going to be separated. The unbelievers will be removed and the believers will go through to people the earth. If the believers, however, are taken at the end of the tribulation and given resurrection body, who are the believers that are actually separated when the Lord returns? absolutely crucial. It cannot be. Right? That's a lovely one, that. It's my favourite. Number six. Number six is quite easy. Where in the New Testament does it say that the church is going to go through the tribulation? Where? Nowhere. That's the answer. There is not one scripture anywhere that says that the church is going to go through the tribulation. But beloved, there are scriptures that definitely say the church is not going to go through the tribulation. And we're going to come on to them for the remainder of the evening. Now these are six important problems. Let me show you how the scheme that we have seen actually irons out these problems and solves them. Here now is the picture of the end of the church. Let me just draw it out. This completes this particular section of the church. The church comes along. Here is church history. And then the dead in Christ will rise and those of us who are alive will be taken up to be with them in the air. So an arrow upwards means the rapture of the church. The church is then in heaven. While the church is in heaven, on the earth, a seven-year period called the tribulation, hits the earth. In that seven-year period, there is mass evangelism. There are at least four evangelistic pushes in the tribulation. I'll be dealing with them when we come on to the details of the tribulation. There are people who are saved in the tribulation while we are in heaven. So that at the end of the tribulation here, you've got unbelievers and believers together so we have no problem over number five. 
What's happening to us in heaven? Well, it's a most wonderful day. We are being, first of all, uh, presented before the judgment seat of Christ and our works are judged. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please listen to my tape in the second series called The Judgment of Believers' Works or Palaces or Mud Huts, as it's called. We are being judged and we are rewarded for our works. Then we are adorned as a bride and guess what? We are married to Christ in heaven. Why? It's our wedding day. Praise God. We've been picked up from where we live and we've been taken on a journey into heaven. And we are married to the Lord up in the heavenlies. Marvellous stuff. And then, after the seven years has gone past, we return with the Lord, second advent. The Lord returns in wrath and judgment, and do you remember he has an army dressed in white behind him? That's you in your wedding dress. Praise God. Absolute righteousness now showing. On every face there will be a smile. It's going to be a glorious day. Praise God. We are coming down in glory with the Lord. And then he will land on the Mount of Olives and then he will judge on the earth. Do you know, that's wonderful. This is comfort. This is excitement that our wedding day is coming. Praise God. Most brides are excited about their wedding day. Right? If you go through the tribulation, it's rather like being excited about going to fight in Vietnam. You know? No, no, no. The church is excited because its, its bridegroom is coming. We are even being prepared as a virgin for him, and we are going to be married to him. And it's going to happen very soon, praise God. No wonder we sing, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king, oh glory soon, yes very soon, we are going to see the king, hallelujah, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king, hallelujah, hallelujah, we're going to see the king, oh hallelujah, oh hallelujah. That's hope, praise God, that's what it's all about. And that's the thrill that's in our heart when we know this is what's going to happen. This tribulation period is a judgment, a time of judgment. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what Romans 8 verse 1 actually says. Praise God. All right, just to show you uh, this, turn with me to Revelation 19. We'll be coming to this passage in later talks. Revelation 19 and beginning verse 7. This is you, by the way. You may not be in the Old Testament, you are in the book of Revelation. And you're not the one, by the way, with boils all over whose tongue is rotting. <clears throat> Verse 6. Well, that may be you, but we'll pray for you afterwards. Oh, I begin verse 5. This is at the end of the tribulation. This is second advent coming. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give honour to him. For the marriage... It's actually the word for marriage feast, the reception, 
The marriage feast of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. Do you see, it's not his beloved, it's not his engaged um, partner, it's his wife has made herself ready. They've already been married, and do you know where the reception's going to be held? Very important to know this, isn't it, as a, as a bride. It's going to be held on the earth. The reception's on the earth. So you come back from heaven with the Lord and you will have guests. Who are the guests? They are the believers who come out from the tribulation. They are going to be your wedding guests. Praise God. You will see them. His wife has made herself ready and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. This is all of you. It's going to happen. Verse 9, And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper, it's translated correctly there, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's not the wife of the Lamb, that's the guests. And so it's saying to the people at the end of the tribulation, if you are a believer, blessed are you. For the first thing on the agenda after the judgment is you've got a wedding reception to attend. Praise God. And you're going to be celebrating the Lamb and his wife. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Hallelujah. Now, that's glorious. This is the day that's coming very soon. And the whole earth will be changed, transformed. I'll tell you, the decorations are going to be the best thing you've ever seen. The whole of the surface of the earth is going to be made as it was before the fall of man. The mountains are going to be so beautiful. The river's so glorious. The trees, abundant as they've never been, they are going to blossom for their saviour. And not only for their saviour, for his wife as well, the church of Jesus Christ. He's coming back with his bride and we're going to have a feast on the earth. Praise God. We will be there and those who come out of the tribulation will also be there. All right. Let me end for tonight by going through some passages in the New Testament that talk about the church and the fact that the church isn't going through the tribulation. I just want to take three main scriptures. All right? The first one is found in the book of Titus, T-T-T-T-T, if you remember, right? 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Can't forget it. Easy. So the fifth T... No, we're not going through to 10.30. Um, in the book of Titus, and chapter 2, and verse 11 onwards, this is one that tells us to look for the coming of the Lord. It's also one of the major proof passages that Jesus Christ is God, by the way. If those of you who have to deal with Jehovah's Witnesses, this is one to know. Because this shows that Jesus definitely is co-equal God with the Father. Look what it says, verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Praise God. And the fact you've got God and Saviour on both sides of an end like that shows they refer to Jesus Christ, both of them. He is the Saviour. He is also 
God. But you see, it doesn't say here, look for the abomination that maketh desolate. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, keep your binoculars on Jerusalem. It doesn't say that. It says, look for the blessed appearing of the Lord. That's what the church is told to do. Who gave himself for us, verse 14, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. That means a people just for himself. We are not just any people. We're God's people. Praise God. We must have a revelation of it and live like it. Zealous of good works, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. All right, another verse. 1 Thessalonians 1. So you go back in your Bible. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9 and 10. And if this doesn't state it, I don't know any passage that does. Verse 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And verse 10 is the verse. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivers. It's present tense. It's not delivered. Which delivers us from the wrath to come. And if that isn't a statement of the fact that he delivers us from the wrath to come, I don't know what is. Praise God. What does it mean? We must look for his glorious appearing because he delivers us from the tribulation that is coming on all the earth. Um, in 2 Thessalonians, we then find another section of scripture. And this is a fascinating one. 2 Thessalonians Chapter 2, do you remember that Paul had been with this church for three weeks and he'd given them Bible teaching and Bible teaching and Bible teaching and Bible teaching. And he taught them and taught them and taught them and had been right through all the basics as far as prophecy were concerned. By the way, they were having five or six hours a day of Bible teaching. Mm -hmm. And we think sometimes an hour and a half is long. Dear, oh dear, oh dear, we have a, lot, a long way to go to meet these early, early church people. And he taught them. He covered all of the rapture, the tribulation, and so on. Now, what had happened was, he'd gone away, and he'd left them knowing that the church would be raptured, and knowing then that a thing called the Day of the Lord would come on the earth. The Day of the Lord simply means the day when he intervenes in human history. At first with judgment, and then to re-establish the earth. In other words, it first of all means the tribulation. And he taught them all about it. And now if he'd gone up country. And you know what had happened? Certain people have written to them saying, oh, by the way, Paul's changed his mind. Paul did think that the church wasn't going through the tribulation, but now he's had another revelation and he's completely changed his opinion. And beloved, I want you to know that the sufferings you are going through from the Romans are going to get worse because <laughs> the tribulation's upon you. And all these believers were stirred up. You know, they didn't have a phone to ring through and say, excuse me, Paul, we've had a letter from brother so-and-so. Could you tell me, is this from you? They didn't do that. What they had to do is write to him saying, Paul, we've had a letter purporting to be from you and someone's told us that this is so anyway. Could you please confirm it, that you've changed your mind about the tribulation? So he writes in 2 Thessalonians, his second letter, this was partly why the second letter was written at all. And look what he says, verse 1. 
Now we beseech you, of chapter 2 this is, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. Now as soon as you read that, from what I've said tonight, you know he's talking about the rapture. Because anything else wouldn't be our gathering to him. I beseech you, from what you know, he says, look, he says, I've given you Bible teaching, how come you still get stirred up? Do you know, I say that, let me let you into a secret, I say that to my wife sometimes, you know, when someone rings up with a particular problem, and I've dealt with it in one of the Bible studies, you know, and I say to, to Ross sometimes, I can't understand how they could get so stirred up about that. I thought I'd, didn't I make it clear in the Bible study, and sometimes I put the tape on to listen, and I did make it clear. And I think, well, were they there? And I think, and, oh, no, they hadn't been there. Or they hadn't heard the tape, or something like that, you know. And I don't know what to do sometimes. And I think, Lord, please make me a better Bible teacher. Make it even clearer, you know. Because some people get all stirred up about things. Amazing. Now, he's saying to them, don't get stirred up. You will meet people who will disagree with what I've told you. You will. Don't get stirred up. You should be so into the knowledge that is contained in the Word of God, that you should say, oh yes, I know what opinion you hold, but what about number five? <laughs> Hallelujah. That's what you should say. And so he says, don't get stirred up. Verse 2, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. That's a mistranslation. It's the day of the Lord. Those of you with an NIV, you have the day of the Lord, don't you? Is that right at that point? That the day of the Lord is at hand. Don't believe it when they say that the tribulation's coming. Forget it. He says this, verse 3, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. Now let's just stop at that point. You will hear <clears throat> Bible teachers say, now before this actually occurs, there's going to be a falling away in the church. The same ones, six months later, will also talk about how the church is going to get more and more glorious and become absolutely fantastic before the Lord comes. And somehow they manage to believe both. Staggering. When I look at this, I immediately say, falling away first. And so I go to the Greek and I say, what's the word falling away? Well, it's the word apostasia. A-P-O-S-T-A-S-I-A. The word apostasia certainly does mean apostasy, a spiritual falling away. But you know, it's also got another meaning. It also means a departure. Let me show you where it means a departure. Keep your finger in the place and let's go to Acts 15, verse 38, where we get the word apostasia again. Acts 15, beginning verse 36. <clears throat> Paul wants to go on another journey. So Paul pops along to see Barnabas, knocks on his door, goes into Barnabas, says, Hey Barnabas, don't you think it's time we went to encourage all of the saints and went to see all the churches that we've established? Verse 36, And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. He says, good idea, Paul. Hey, and I think Mark's available. John Mark. Yeah, that'd be good. He came with us last time. Do you remember? Paul says, now hold on a minute. Yeah, he came with us part of the way last time and then he left. Do you remember? 
And so there's sharp contention between them. Verse 38, But Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder and so on. Can you see, it says here, John Mark departed from them. He left them. What's it talking about? It's talking about a physical departure. He got to this particular place and he said, I can't go on. I'm sorry, I'm going home. And all of a sudden he said, ta and off with his bags. Straight out the door. The word is apostasia. It means a physical departure with spiritual overtones. Well, if the rapture of the church isn't a spiritual departure with spiritual overtones, I don't know what is. And it is Dr. Shula English who says that in this passage in 2 Thessalonians, the word apostasia here also means a departure and refers to the rapture of the church. Look what it's, if it does mean that, look what it's saying. Clear as a bell. That day cannot come except a departure occur first. Praise the Lord. In other words, the day of the Lord, the tribulation, cannot come until the church has been removed from the earth. That is the position I hold. That is, as far as I can see, the only logical, biblical position to hold. It's got to go. Not only that, but look. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And what he's saying is, once the church is removed, then the man of sin, this is Antichrist, comes. And he's saying to them, who do you think Antichrist is then? He hasn't come. If you read on, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And do you remember we saw him last time from Daniel chapter 9. This is the prince that is going to come to set up the abomination of desolations. Remember, verse 5, Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. So what are you getting so stirred up about, he's saying? Come on, surely you remember, we went right through it. And then in the next section, which we'll be dealing with later on in another Bible study, he talks about the fact that at the moment the Holy Spirit is holding back evil. And the evil must be held back. But the day the Holy Spirit goes, then evil is going to break out. I'll tell you this, you think these days are bad? You have seen nothing. Today, the Holy Spirit is holding back evil. What you see is evil that just manages to percolate under the influence of the Holy Spirit. We see nothing but a trickle of evil. And today, you will find men who say, well, I think men are pretty good. After all, society is not that bad. That's what they say. Therefore, man, you know, it's man that's made it so good. Uh -huh. If the Holy Spirit were removed, you would see exactly how evil man really is. And the people who think the church are going, is going through the tribulation very often have no idea of how awful the tribulation is going to be. There is not a period in past history that will in any way be comparable with the awful things that are coming upon the earth in the tribulation. You read the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 6 to chapter 19, and you have a look at some of the awful things that are happening. To end this section, that is, to deal and finish the church. I just want to turn to that book, the book of Revelation. I want to show you how even in the book of Revelation it is clear that the church will not go through the tribulation. In Revelation 2 and 3, the church is mentioned very definitely and specific churches are named. 
So at this point, very definitely, the church is on the earth. And notice a phrase that we find in Revelation 2, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Do you see that? You find the same phrase then in Revelation 3, verse 6. Revelation 3 and verse 6. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. But do you know, as you read on then, in Revelation, that phrase is never used like that again. For example, turn to Revelation 13, 9, and have a look at what it says. Revelation 13 and verse 9. If any man have an ear, let him hear. Full stop. Absolutely no mention of the church. And why not? I'll tell you why. Because Revelation 2 and 3 deal with the church. But how does Revelation 4 begin? I saw an open door in heaven. Praise God. Guess what that's about? <laughs> Hallelujah. The rapture of the church. And in Revelation 4, we have heaven empty. In Revelation 5, we have heaven full. Who's filled it? You filled it. Praise God. And then from Revelation chapter 6 to 19 is a description of the tribulation period. Now we'll be going through parts of the book of Revelation and you'll be seeing how it all ties together and makes sense. The clear message from tonight is this, that to be biblically consistent you cannot believe that the church can go through the tribulation. If you do, you get passages all confused. You don't know whether one passage is about the church or whether this applies to you. Oh, does Israel here mean the Chichester Christian Fellowship? <laughs> or is it St. Peas? Or what is it? You know? What is this place? Oh, this passage of Scripture says, And I will scourge you, O Israel. <gasps> Terrible. You know? And then you stand up and say, Here Israel means the charismatic movement. <laughs> you see? And that's it. We've got to be terribly careful. The church is not going to go through the tribulation. The church is going to be removed as the bride of Christ and will be wedded to the Lord even in the heavenlies. That is the great truth that the Bible reveals and it's the great source of comfort as far as we are concerned. But I want to end by challenging every one of our hearts. The people who don't like the rapture of the church and don't accept the rapture of the church often say about people who believe in the rapture, the trouble is with them is that they're defeated Christians. They're defeated and they're defeatist. And they say these people who believe in the rapture of the church, they just sit back with their feet up. They just say, well, the earth's going to get worse and worse, so we're just going to let it happen. Beloved, that is a true criticism of the church. It is a true criticism, generally speaking, of people who believe in the rapture. That is not correct to do that. We believe in the rapture because the Bible says it. But listen, we've got a job to do before we go. And that's why all of us have got to be stirred up. You only have one very short life. You must make sure you use it to the maximum advantage. Definitely so. That is why you've got to get to the place where you get Bible teaching. Because if you don't get it when it's available, the day may come when you will not get it. And the day will come when you say, if only I'd listened. We don't know what's going to happen in Britain. The tribulation is going to affect Britain, minus the church, 
But before the rapture of the church, there may be dark days ahead. We just do not know. Now is the day of grace. Now evil is still held back. We've got to pray for our nation. We've got to seek the Lord on behalf of our nation. It is up to the church, really, how our nation will go. It's up to the church, and we've got to fulfill our responsibility. We've got to make sure that the people around us know the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. Every person in this room, this is a challenge to us. I'll tell you this, your family may not have you around for much longer. And if you haven't told them about the glorious news of Jesus Christ, who is going to tell them? Is it, it, it's going to be too late. They're going to go through the tribulation. I've told, by the way, some of my unbelieving members, or the members of my family who are still unbelievers, despite the fact I've given them the gospel. I've actually said, well, listen, this is what's going to happen. Right? And I've said, the day's going to come when I won't be around anymore. I won't die, I'm just going to was not. Praise the Lord. <laughs> All right? And I've said to them, now look, as soon as the church vanishes, turn to the Lord immediately, because there will be seven years. And I've warned them about this. That is quite okay. There will be believers saved in the tribulation. My heart's desire, however, is that they will be part of the bride of Christ, not just one of the wedding guests. The task is urgent. For us as a fellowship, may I tell you this, that today the Church of Jesus Christ generally has gone away from the Word of God. They've rejected the authority of Scripture. And it's groups like ours that are in the minority. It's the minority of Christians who will bother to come to hear the teaching of the Word of God. They will come definitely to a healing meeting. They will come definitely where they can see wonders and miracles. Very definitely. But the teaching of the Word of God, no, we've heard it all before. And they haven't heard it at all. Praise God, he's raised up Bible teaching and is raising it up even more in our land. But I'm not going to be the only Bible teacher from this particular group of Christians. There are going to be many Bible teachers from the midst, praise God. This is where we're going. We've got to see that God has given us a vision for the whole body of Christ. It's to get the word of God out. Hallelujah. And you'll notice in the Old Testament it says, if a person comes and does miracles, but leads you away from the Lord, don't follow after him. And how do you know whether he's leading you away from the Lord? Because you've got to have enough of the word of God in your head to be able to resist. God has raised us up for this task. Therefore, we need to gird up the loins of our mind and gird up the loins of our bodies to devote ourselves to this task. You are absolutely no fool if you do it. Praise God. It's a real challenge. Hallelujah. We are not a defeatist generation. We know what is in man. We know, certainly, that men reject Jesus Christ. But while we are on the earth, there is going to be a shining light, a blazing torch, and it's going to be the word of God held high. Beloved, Jesus is coming soon. Hallelujah. What does it matter, though we lay down our lives for the gospel? He is coming soon and very soon. Hallelujah. Next time... We leave the church altogether and we have the introduction to the tribulation. God bless you all. Amen.